everyone. Welcome back to Central American Voices. This is Susan Garcia. Hola, bienvenidos a Voces Centroamericanas. Mi nombre es Alejandra Quiroz. Le agradecemos por sintonizarnos una vez más. On today's episode, we talk with Nestor Cedeño, the author of Entre Rebelión y Dictadura, which is a compilation of short stories and poems about civil rebellion in Nicaragua. Welcome, Nestor, and thank you for coming on today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me as well. Um, my name is Nestor Cedeño. I'm originally, although I'm from Los Angeles, California, I would like to say that I was reborn in Nicaragua. Um, I am the author of Entre Rebelión y Dictadura. It was published uh, this recently in January. Uh, and it is a collection of short stories and poems, like you said. It is based on situations and people surrounding the civic rebellion that was born in April of 2018 in Nicaragua. And it tells different stories of events that happened and people who lived through those events. Some of them are not real. Some of them were uh, made up based on true facts. Others were uh, completely real. And I had the pleasure to uh, speak and uh, write about some of these individuals who uh, took the time and gave me uh, information that I needed from them. Um, I'm currently in the city of Miami, Florida. I'm a teacher. Uh, I teach immigrant students English as a second language. and um, I moved to Nicaragua when I was uh, 14 years old, and I lived in Nicaragua for 12 years. Uh, when I went to Nicaragua, my Spanish was horrible. Uh, I was, you would consider, you know, a level one Spanish speaker. And my father had the bright idea to go, hey, let's go to Nicaragua. And, and, and better yet, let's go live in the most remote town possible. Oh, God. In, the mountains of, in the mountains of Hinotega, a place called San <laughs> a place called San Sebastián de Ali. It is a, you know, at the time, it was it's a podunk town, uh, dirt roads. It took you three hours to get there, where today it'll take you 45 minutes probably. Um, and those were the best three years of my life. I learned Spanish. Um, But it was fun. I learned I learned so much in the country. Um, I went to school there. I did what everybody did. They called me el chele, you know, el gringo, and then when everybody, you know, started to be started to be called my friend. Um, you know, things changed, and those are great three years. After that, um, I moved uh, to the city because my parents, I guess, got bored of Nicaragua, and they all decided to return to the states. And I said, no, I stayed. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I finished high school in Messiah and I went to college. I am a uh, alumni of Universidad Centroamericana UCA in Managua. And that's where I went to school. And that's where politically uh, my life really started. Um, you know, before going to college and I was still in high school, I, I had the privilege of uh, doing, you know, odd jobs like a typical high school kid would do uh i tell the story of you know when i was in high school i was also a dj at a club and uh you know i have these crazy stories of going to these parties in messiah and all over the country those were great years um i was also a uh 
a translator for an NGO uh, out of New York called Bridges to Community. Um, and I had the opportunity of going with medical brigades all over the country, different spots. Uh, the one place I remember going to was uh, after the uh, after Hurricane Mitch uh, hit Nicaragua, mm -hmm. and it caused the uh, the uh, issue with uh, Volcan Casitas, the mudslide at Casitas, mm -hmm. and it basically uh, buried an entire town on on the 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 edge of a volcano, of a dormant volcano. Right. And I got to uh, go there after it happened. And, you know, and, and I saw some horrific things there. Um, and I went across to the town of Pozoltega, uh, and I saw, you know, houses where you could see the lines up to almost the ceiling where the water came up to and the stories that I had to translate to these doctors about how these people spent days, uh, you know, sleeping on tree limbs, seeing their, their cows and their chickens trying to grab on as well, things like that. Um, and then I went to college and, you know, I got involved little by little with the student movements. I mean, not as much as other people, but, mm -hmm. uh, I did get involved. Um, I was slightly involved with uh, the Seis Porciento movement, and in there, Seis Porciento is the six uh, percent that the universities receive for uh, from the government uh, to pay for uh, scholarships and, uh, and other things that the universities need. And so, I did get involved a little bit with that. Again, not as much as others, uh, but that was my foray into politics, basically. Um, in, right. in my book, in my in, in my introduction to the book, I talk a lot about my, you know, how I got involved with uh, politics with regards to the Sandinistas. And we can talk about that later. But but, it, you know, politics in my life has always been present. That's why the book has a lot of, a lot of talk of politics in it. Thank you. Thank you, Nasser, for being with us today. I know in your introduction, you talk a little bit of how you moved from Los Angeles to a small town in Nicaragua. And would you like to tell us a little bit how was the transition going from a big city like Los Angeles to a small town in Nicaragua and how the play a role in your life? When my parents told me that they were deciding to leave the States and move to Nicaragua, it was, I don't want to leave. I don't, I've been, I've been to Nicaragua before, but I was there for a week, two weeks, a month, maybe. You know, I always knew that I was going to come back and Spanish wasn't going to be too much of a problem because everyone would translate for me. Mm. But this was different. This was like, well, nope, we're moving, we're leaving. All <laughs> right. No, I don't know. I no. this is all I know. Um, how can you just, you know, take us out of the States and go to a country where we know nothing about. Um, right. So it was rough. And then when they told us where we were going to live, oh, by the way, we're move, not going to the capital. We're not going to the city. We're going to, you know, this faraway town. My father would say, donde el viento se regresa. <laughs> and if you understand what that means, you'd go get it. It's far. So when we were told that we were going to go live in this, you know, in his in his, uh, this town and the house where he grew up in, I was like, 
that you know I'm, I'm 13 years old I was like that's the end of that's the end of my life that's the end of the world for me <laughs> yeah um and the transition was tough I remember the first day of school uh you know you gotta wear blue pants white shirt and that was my first experience with combat boots mm-hmm. you know you have to wear the military style boots and Interesting. and my mom told me, stick your pants inside the boots because it's, it just rained the day before. I was like, you're going to get all muddied up. I'm like, okay. So I did that. And then on my way to school, you know, we're trying to avoid all these mud puddles. And then all of a sudden, here comes this pig. And the oh, pig no. is running downhill. Oh, no. And I don't know where to head to. I don't know where, where to jump. I got mud on the left, mud on the right. And so all I did, like, I literally jumped with my legs open and let the pig just go underneath me. That's so funny. Oh my god! And and that was that was my first day of school. And then uh, you know, first day of school jitters. I didn't know anyone. I met these yeah. uh, these two brothers. Uh, they were twins who ended up being my best friends while I was there. Um, and they were really cool, and they helped me out. And you know, in transition, my Spanish was crap, okay. but yeah, we went from there. Um, and little by little, I learned. You know. It was it was a, an interesting experience. It had a lot of highs, a lot of lows. Uh, the transition was rough, maybe the first six months, and then after yeah. that, I got used to it. You know? uh, it's a small so town, did, so everybody knew you. Right. So it's interesting that um, by the time your parents wanted to leave Nicaragua and go back to the U.S. At that point, how did you feel about staying in Nicaragua? If you could elaborate more about why you just refused to leave. So three years after arriving, my parents decided to go back. They just felt that, you know, it wasn't what they were expecting. Mm. Uh, Maybe it was because where they chose to live, it wasn't the city. They were, you know, coming from the States, they were used to having all the amenities of city life, I guess. Uh, or maybe economically it didn't work out the way they thought it would. We're talking about the early 90s when uh, Violeta Chamorro was still president and economically the, the country was in pretty bad shape. Hmm. Um, so they decided to go back and I said no. Now, granted, I was 15 years old, 16 years old, and I had a girlfriend at the time. That was probably the number one reason why I didn't want to leave. Hmm. Um, but I had gotten used to it. I had, you know, learned to embrace and love where I was at. And I had, you know, enjoyed living in a country that I thought I would never enjoy living in. And that was tough, too, because when I told my dad, no, you know, we got into an argument and I ended up, you know, leaving the house for a week. And eventually they realized that I was serious. I didn't want to leave. I wanted to finish and, you know, do something with myself. In Nicaragua, not back in the States, because I had gotten used to the idea of living there. Um, Mm. So it was complicated for everyone. My parents eventually did go back and I finished high school and went to college in Nicaragua. I was lucky enough to uh, be accepted into the house of my mom's brother, my uncle, who was like a second Mm. father to me. And things worked out. My parents returned. They live in Vegas. I didn't see them again until... Uh, another three years after they left. Uh, and, and you know, it is what it is. But it's, yeah. it's, it's the decisions that we all make in life. Right. 
So afterwards, you went to UCA, um, Universidad Centroamericana, and you talk about, and you already mentioned this, but you talk in your introduction about how this was the this was your foray into politics and how you know you started supporting the Sandinista movement, um, and also you mentioned how that's kind of changed, and that was a motivation for your book. So if you could just talk more about that. When I still lived in the faraway town up north, uh, in the book, I talk about how I was invited to uh, a Sandinista youth movement meeting. And it was weird, uh, you know, with all the the chants and the and the the things that they were saying, they were very welcoming. Um, they I wasn't forced into anything. They you know they said, "Hell, come on in, take a listen. If you like what you are listening to, stick around. If not, have a great day." And I stayed and I listened, and it it wasn't for me. I wasn't into politics at, at mm-hmm. that age. When I got to college, things changed because you know in college. You know, you, you see more, you see things a lot differently. Um, you you start to mature a lot more. That's the idea. And um, yeah, I, I got more involved in, in more political things um, because I was benefiting from uh, from safe porciento, from from the budget that the universities get from the government. So. Uh, I got involved in my major. I was part of the student government while I was there. Um, I wasn't overly involved with protesting or anything. I did get, you know, myself into a couple of protests here or there, but I, but I wasn't, you know, out in the streets all the time. I, I, I stayed in the in the campus. I, I went to class. Um, I did participate in a couple of activities where. Um, the right, the Antimotines would come and they, you know, throw pepper spray and stuff. So I did experience that, but it wasn't to the point where um, I was protesting the way that, that a lot of college students protested in April of 18. Um, so, yeah, it, I did get involved and it was it was where I understood little by little uh, what the Sandinistas were trying to do while not in power. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a phrase that says that, you know, Daniel Ortega said that he was going to uh, governar desde abajo or, you know, govern from the shadows if you want. And he did exactly that. Uh, he, you know, behind the scenes sent, you know, his turbas to do his dirty work and sent the Juventud Sandinistas to influence in the universities and the public universities. Mm-hmm. And and it, and it worked, you know, eventually he got reelected. So it had to work. Um, I, I'm not going to say that I was a Sandinista. I, I never joined the party. I never became Juventu Sandinista. But I did, like a lot of people would say, fall in love with the mystic of Sandino and the movement. That I won't deny. And I didn't deny it in my book. Uh, it's part of me. Um, but I also recognize that, you know, it was a mistake to believe so much uh, because it, you know, it blinds people from the truth a lot of times. And that is true in countries like Nicaragua. And of course, in many Central American countries, 
uh, people tend to pick SI, either as a political party, or in this case, you know, like the Sandinista movement, or, you know, lo que llaman el azul y blanco, ¿verdad? Um, one of the questions that I have while reading your book was why do you choose those stories? Um, I believe many of the Nicaraguan um, people sometimes don't want to believe those that have, you know, a relation and ideology to the Sandinista movement. So that was one of the predominant questions while I was reading your book. Why do you choose those stories in particular? So the stories that I chose, uh, let me backtrack for a second. When I started writing uh, about what was going on in April, it's it started out as a blog where I would just express my opinion. There were more opinion pieces than anything. And because uh, I, I'm an English teacher, so uh, that's my that's my uh, field of, of expertise. Um, a lot of those opinion pieces were like very comparative to uh, stories that people have read. So, like for example, I you know one one day I compared uh, Ortega to Macbeth, and it was a perfect perfect compare and contrast because he is Macbeth. Um, I compared the country to Verona, where Romeo and Juliet live, and how you got two sides that totally hate each other and, and people who just want to be together and be free, things like that. Um, and it wasn't until uh, the Mother's Day Massacre that I wrote my first story. And my first story wasn't about anyone in particular. It was just about two neighbors who get into this argument. And one of them is a staunch Sandinista, Sapa, we would call her. And the other was this Azuli Blanco. And, and it was just a typical, you know, these two old ladies getting into an argument over something. And everybody listening to the argument in, in the barrio. And that story, that first story, did not end on a happy note. I, by the end of the story, even though the... The, the neighbor who was Azuli Blanco told her Sandinista neighbor, you know, basically the whole truth to her face. The next day that woman was arrested. And I wrote it that way just to, you know, because at that time people were getting arrested for, for, for ridiculous reasons. Right. And it wasn't the neighbor who, who snitched on her. It was the CPC del Barrio, the, you know, the, the person, the Sandinista uh, lady, another Sandinista lady who was in charge of the of the street, uh, who who snitched because she saw the whole conversation. You know, that was my first story. It wasn't about anyone in particular. I just took a situation and and I wrote about it. And and little by little, I started writing stories like that until I tried to get uh, the attention of people who were involved. Once they started getting out of uh, out of prison. So my first story about someone real was about this girl named Valeska Sandoval. And she was, um, she was a, a, a university student at UNAN, which was a state-run university. And she was involved in, one of, in the takeover of the campus. And when the paramilitares and the police started shooting to take over the campus, uh, she was caught, you know, behind a tranque and she did a Facebook live, you know, thinking she was going to die. And she's, you know, it's, it's famous in Nicaragua where she's like, mama, perdoname, salir a defender la patria. 
thinking that she was going to die that day. And and luckily yeah. she didn't, and and a lot of them didn't, but you know a few, a couple did, and she was able to escape. And a few days later, she got caught. They found her, and they took her to this famous uh, we call it torture chamber of uh, this place called uh, El Chipote. And Chipote used to be um, a bunker underneath uh, Somoza's presidential palace, and today it's. Still a bunker where you know the police used to use it for uh, interrogations and people who wanted they wanted to keep hidden for a while they would torture them before sending them to La Modelo, which is the, the state prison. Um, and they had her there, and the story basically talks about her, conf- you know, confessing to what she had to do and what they forced her to do, and and. By the end of that, it was her saying, "I, you know, no me arrepiento de nada. I don't regret it. Yeah. I did what I had to do because this was a situation that I was put in." She was the first person I spoke to, and she was very nice about it. I explained everything to her and what I wanted to do, and I wanted to use her own voice. So, if you read that story, if you do read that story, I have had to make up the first part. I was the teacher, basically, in that story, and. Mm-hmm part where she's talking is her i mean i edited it but it's her those are her words not mine and that was the first time i published someone something um in collaboration with another person and i was able to to do that with a few people um i spoke with uh this couple from messiah their names are uh, christian fajardo and his wife maria Delia peralta and and i made the story basically into uh, a love story. It wasn't about what they did or, you know, how they got caught or anything of the sort. It was basically the story of their love because they had just gotten married not even six months before they went to prison. Wow. So the story is, is, you know, a love story about them being separated for for almost a year or so and how they finally got back together. I was able to tell the story of a kid named Jonathan Morasan, who was uh, shot down uh, during the Mother's Day massacre by a sniper. And I had the opportunity to speak to his sister. And his sister told me the story in detail. You know, it's in the news, but she gave me more details. Mm -hmm. Um, I got to speak to his best friend, and he gave me details. So I wrote the story... In a different way, this one was told, uh, it's the same story through the eyes of four different people. So at a certain point, one person stops and then another person begins, but the story goes back to one. I had to create the, the, the character of the, of the sniper, because obviously no one knows who the sniper is. So I had, to, I had to put myself in that character, and that was probably as deep as I've gotten in the story. Because I had to be evil in that in that yeah. moment, and I had to tell his side of the story through you know through his eyes, and that was interesting to do. I also wrote the story of, and this is probably a name that everybody knows of, uh, this kid named Alvaro Conrado. He was the first. Uh, he was the first young person to die, mm. and I didn't tell the story of what happened to him because everybody knows that story. 
Right. But I know the person or one of the people who helped try to save him uh, mm-hmm. because he was rejected into the first hospital they went to. So this person shows up and he helps them get into the second hospital. And uh, he's the one who calls Alvaro's father. And so I told that story not through the eyes of the, of the boy who dies, but uh, through the eyes of the, of the man who tried to save him as a father. So, you know, every story has a different context. Um, and I try to make it different so that, you know, each one has a different voice. Um, but yeah, it's, it's mother, the mother's day massacre was what pushed me into writing stories instead of opinion pieces because everybody writes opinion pieces, but not everybody's writing stories about it. Right. Exactly. I think that story in particular was the one that shocked me the most, especially not because it's only the first one in your book, but it's because it, like you said, it did not end in happy end. And I feel like by being the first one in your book, it kind of gave the context of how the situation was or still is at the moment in Nicaragua. And I actually made my mom to read it. And out of that specific story, my mom was like, this Siempre te digo que las paredes escuchan. And that is true. You know, we can see in this story. Even though you said that some of the characters on those stories are created characters. I mean, they're based on the real story. You know, they're based on the real situation that happened in Nicaragua. It still has that human touch. And I think that the human touch that you have in your book is very important. Because it, it connects the, the reader. And it makes it feel what a person was feeling exactamente en ese momento. Yeah, a, a lot of the characters, like like I said, they were created. There's there's stories that aren't real, but I use things that were in the news. Like there's yeah. a story that was also one of the toughest stories I had to write. It's called Sucedió Bajuna Yovisna, and it's a story about a girl who was basically raped and murdered by the police, and that really happened. Yeah. I don't know who the girl was or anything, but I took the story and I changed it up a little you know just mm-hmm. you know because it has it has when you write a story it has to be something that you know puts you in the place it's not like a news report a news report tells you the facts and that's about it but a, a story tells you gives you details it puts you in the spot so when i told that story i mean that story originally was going to be something completely different and then i'm just typing away And my brain gets to work and the words change. And that that story, when I finished it, I was was like, wow, I can't believe I wrote this. And I showed it to a friend of mine before I ever made it public. And uh, she's like, this is deep, but it's true. So a a lot of the stories don't end happily. Like, yes, there's, there are stories like, The one about the couple that I already mentioned, Christian and Maria Lilia, that ends happily. Like at the end of that story, they're back together after a year or so in prison. And she puts on her traje typico and she dances in his honor. Uh, that mm-hmm. one ends happily. You know, but a lot of them don't. A lot of them end, you know, on a sad note. A girl dies and her mother blames the police and the police just look the other way. Or uh, Alvaro Conrado dies and the guy who tried to save him had to uh, to leave the country in exile because he he testified and, and they tried to go, you know, try to go after him. Or 
there's another story uh, called La Boga, which is the story of uh, Francis Valdivia. And she is um, the sister of uh, a, a boy named Franco, who uh, died the same day as Alvaro Conrado, but in a different city, uh, got shot in the head. And, and her, her crew, you know, the story is a dream of hers. And it may end in a sort of happy way, but her brother's still dead. So, you know, every story has, has a different ending. Uh, I, I, I can't make everything happen. No, that's because then that, then that yeah. would be fantasy. And, and I was, you know, when I wrote the book, I was very clear to people who read it. And I go, look, a lot of these things are real and not a lot of them are not. But the ones that are not real are taken from things that we all know happened. And, and I have to be truthful with the word, so. Yeah. And I think that what you're doing is particularly important, especially, you know, in Nicaragua, where, you know, you hear about the figures um, of people who go missing or are killed. Um, and it becomes more and more normalized um, because the violence hasn't necessarily ended. It's still happening. Um, and so a lot of the times these people like names or just numbers, you know, it just becomes, it, it just becomes statistics. And there's that danger of people becoming more and more passive to it, you know, just saying, oh, well, that's how it is. That's Daniel Ortega for you, you know, and each new, you know, disappearance or murder or rape is just like, oh yeah, that's just what happens. But, you know, kind of humanizing each of these stories and, you know, oh, like 300 people missing, like each of those people had a voice that you created that again, you know, it's not true, but it's based in truth. Um, no, cor correct. I mean, in any situation like that, there's always going to be people who don't believe there's always going to be people who are very passive. Oh, you know, right. as long as it doesn't involve me, I'm going to stay on my side of the situation right. and, and let them take care of it. There's always people like that. And I, I personally, I can't do that. Like uh, I'm very active on, on Twitter, on Facebook. And, and I, it, it's impossible for me as someone who has seen what has happened and know yeah. people who have gone through horrific things to stay on the sidelines. Um, you know, I've been very lucky. I mean, I've, I've been active on, on social media and I've, I've made very good friends with people who have been involved with SOS and Nicaragua uh, mm -hmm. in the past few years where, um, you know, to the point where there's this girl who wrote the epilogue to my book. Her name is Anais. And mm -hmm. I met her on Twitter and we became yeah. very good friends. And, and I asked her out of the blue, hey, do you want to do this for me? And she's like, sure. And she wrote a, you know, a very uh, poignant piece on, you know, what it's going to be like when this is all over on, on, you know, respirando aire de libertad, she called it. Right. And, uh, and we, we went with it and I was published. You know, I, 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 the person who edited my book, I met on Twitter. I don't know her personally. She lives in Canada. The person who pushed me to write the book, to move it from a blog online a, a real printed book uh, I met on Twitter as well so you know I, through SOS on Nicaragua I, I was able to not only you know become a better writer but also 
uh, published the book that that exists today. And still, I, I still you know use the blog today. I've already published four, and I'm you know by the time this recording comes out, I built I'll publish one more. So I'm already working towards the second one. Oh yes, that's exciting. Um, I think that you know hearing you talk about the role of I guess the online Nicaraguan community just reminds me of overall how I mean yes the Nicaraguan community but the Central American community is really mobilizing a lot digitally um, and you know I it's amazing that in your case it resulted in a book um, but there's many other instances that we're seeing at the same time you know I mean I've also seen Anais She's very active uh, with SOS Nicaragua. So I've seen, you know, like protesting, meeting up with other Nicaraguans to, you know, protest in person. It's manifesting into real results. Um, So it's just also it's just highlighting how important it is for I mean, for us in the diaspora, but also people in Central America to utilize the Internet. Just for something to our benefit in that sense. Well, the the internet has been very beneficial to SOS on Nicaragua because right. uh, the state controls 90% of the media in Nicaragua. Uh, they closed 100% Noticias, which was the major opposition channel during the rebellion. Mm. They closed the second biggest one in Confidencial. Uh, the ones that are still around are, you know, they're not given access to to the government or to speak to people in the government. Uh, they're harassed all the time by the tour bus or the police. So, you know, online, the digital platforms um, have helped tremendously because anyone with a cell phone became a reporter uh, during right. the worst times. And, you know, the Sandinistas, they, they got into the game late. Mm. By the time they realized that Twitter and Facebook and, and the other media medias were were hitting them hard internationally, for example, then they joined the game and it was by that time they they, they didn't have what it took. Now, are they they strong now? They they are. They have their backing, but it's not as close as to what SOS and Nicaragua have. One of the last section of your book um has a very um touching sentence as it was said at the beginning and at the end of your um of that section and that is yo soy nicaragüense por gracia de dios personally i have heard a lot of my friends say it you know they're always like oh you know yo no nací aquí pero yo soy nicaragüense gracias a dios and i wanted to ask you what does the phrase means not only to you you know, like you were born here in Los Angeles and moved back to Nicaragua, or what does the phrase mean to someone like El Exiliado, to someone that was born um, out of Nicaragua, but that phrase still has a meaning connected to that? That phrase at the end of that story, it sums up the whole story if you actually, you know, focus your attention on that one phrase, because it's said at the beginning and it's said at the end. Right. El Exiliado's mother says it. Yes. And then he says it at the end. And it it basically, it's it's a call to action. It's like, whoever I am, wherever I am, I'm always Nicaraguan. And I'm sure everyone in, in their own country has their own saying, right? But in Nicaragua, it's, 
okay, I might be, you know, in Miami where I live right now, but my heart is in Nicaragua. Soy Nicaraguense por gracia de Dios. I might, I was born in the States. I'm an American citizen, but I lived my formative years in Nicaragua. I went to school in Nicaragua, I went to college in Nicaragua. So I consider myself, even though I'm an American citizen, I consider myself Nicaragüense por gracia de Dios. My parents are both Nicaraguan. Uh, I, I'm appreciative to them to have put me in that country. Everything happened for a reason. And before that, I wasn't Nicaragüense por gracia de Dios. But if you ask me today, like I said at the beginning, I, I'm from Los Angeles, but reborn in Nicaragua. Because my country's culture and everything that evolves, whether it be good, bad, or ugly, about my country is who I am as a person. So those words I wrote in that story because, you know, anyone can be that exiliado. Born yeah. somewhere else, like I was, you know, went to live in Nicaragua and had to leave for whatever reason it may be doesn't matter uh, you know they ask you hey where are you from soy nicaragüense por gracia and a lot of people say that i mean it's in a song so um that's what it meant that's what it means it's a call to action it's it's a way to you know we say mi country sacar pecho soy nicaragüense por gracia i might be here i might be there i might be anywhere but i'm still from nicaragua because that's where god put me and i'm happy for that the story of El Exiliado is kind of my story because, I mean, I'm the Exiliado's birthday is my birthday to start. Mm. Um, the Exiliado's mother is basically my mother. Mm. Uh, you know, when she, when my mother read the story, she's like, you know what? I, I identify with uh, El Exiliado's mom because that's basically me. Uh, I believed in that system i i I understand this is but today i understand like you she's talking to me that uh it was all it's all a lie they're they're killers they're they're you know they're uh, fanatics towards the dictator um so in a way that story is my story not completely but but in a way it's my story so when everybody asks me, hey, where are you from? You know, I'm from Nicaragua. In my classroom, in my classroom, there's the American flag because it's, it's in a classroom. But next to the American flag is my Nicaraguan flag that I hang. Oh, I love that. Talking about the specific story about El Exiliado in your book, and even though you're saying that is technically your story, but it can relate, of course, to many others. I, love, I like how you talk about the migration to to Costa Rica because a lot of people don't know that, you know, people in the eighties. And of course now with all the situation with Ortega, a lot of people instead of going North because, you know, of course going North is a big trip right. um, or because of just uh, um, el acceso que tiene de que Costa Rica está más cerca. Um, a lot of people decide to go to Costa Rica. And now there is Nicaraguans being born in Costa Rica. And even though there's two countries side by side, they're still connected. A lot of the exiles that are in Costa Rica right now, I would I would guess that they would rather be home, not because of yeah. the conditions that they live in, but but because they don't identify with Costa Rica. They're they're gracious mm-hmm. to the country for for what they've been given, uh, but they would rather be home. Uh, right. It's you know it's it's a piece of them is missing. I'm sure that a piece of them is missing. I'm not an exile. I live here out of choice. 
but a piece of me is missing. And I wish I could go back right now. And I know I probably can't because I've said things online and, you know, people know me. And so I, the book, the book isn't, you know, it, it can't be marketed in Nicaragua right now because of the situation, but I've done mm. my best to, I've done my best to give copies to people in Nicaragua mm. just so that, you know, people can read. And, and I've gotten feedback on, on the different things that I've written. Um, you know, it, it happens eventually. I know that eventually, you know, whatever I write will make its way uh, to the general right. public in Nicaragua, but it's not right now. Yeah, I know. Okay. Yeah, and I know you mentioned how your book cannot be marketed in Nicaragua for very specific reasons. But one of my questions is, why this type of literature is important for the Nicaraguan people and, of course, for the entire Central American community? Well, originally, my, my writing is for my people, for Nicaraguans. But, you know, you've read it. You're not Nicaraguan. So if you are able to identify in some way with what you're reading, then, you know, you're my audience as well. Um, anyone who writes memoirs or anything about their country, their target audience has to be Nicaraguans or wherever they're from. Um, I tried my best to uh, make the language easy to understand, even though there my my book has slang in it and I've, you know, tried hard to make the slang understandable. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes it doesn't translate. You know, there are words that people from Honduras say that, that we don't say in Nicaragua or people from El Salvador. We don't say them in Nicaragua and vice versa. But the context is there. I try to make it so that if I say a slang word, for example, that I try to give it context. That way, that anyone who is not from Nicaragua who reads it goes, oh, okay, I get what he's saying. Like I use the word out of the blue, vacilar, in one of the stories. And vacilar in Nicaragua, it means to joder, to, to bother, to, to right. bug someone. But it also means to, you know, to not hesitate. So I used it in a sentence saying, you know, this person, no vaciló en hacerle llamada. And my cousin... My own cousin told me, hey, uh, but you use vacilar. I'm like, yes. Did you know that vacilar means this also? I'm like, oh, okay. So it all depends. I, I tried to make it so that the context was understandable. But again, yeah, my target audience is, you know, Nicaraguans. So right. anyone who, who is not from Nicaragua reads it uh, and understands it, I'm happy. One of my students, one of my students is from El Salvador, and, and she read it. And, mm. you know, she said, oh, I was, I was crying in the middle of the night. My mom wakes me, wakes up and goes, why are you crying? Oh, I'm just reading this story. About this story. <laughs> like, okay. And, then she, and she came to me the next day and she's like, mister, what is this word mean? <laughs> and I'm like, it means this. <laughs> okay. I get it now. <laughs> so it doesn't always translate, but you know, eventually right. like, it'll right. get there. Yeah. No. And then, um. I mean, again, like I'm also not Nicaraguan, but reading it, uh, although I didn't read the whole thing, but I definitely plan to, especially with these previews of these other stories. Um, it's, you know, like as and again, like this also kind of rises out of, you know, the on, the online community that Central Americans generally or like, you know, the hashtag Nicaragua, um, that you're exposed to. 
um, there's kind of like a solidarity that's being cultivated, I feel, um, where, you know, you want to learn about what's happening. Okay, like, I get that I'm not from Nicaragua, let's say, but I want to learn about what's happening there because a lot of the times the things that are happening in our countries are just are the results of like a regional trend that we've all been subjected to, you know? Um, they're all coming from like conflicts in like the 80s or the 70s and like interventions that have been happening. Um, the migrations look similar, although, you know, the destination may be different, but the struggles can be very much along race and class. These things are still very, the themes are very universal. Um, and so I, I think it's also, you know, just adding on to why this literature is important. It's just, it's educational for us. And there's something that, although you're not Nicaraguense, first of all, you learn, you can try to support the movement, but also what can you take away from, you know, your own context um, and also just the regional context as to what it means. And so I think that um, th that's just another important purpose that's, you know, it's not necessarily, it doesn't have to be just for, of course, like when you write it, you're thinking about Nicaraguans, but I think that it, it's useful, even if you're not i think all of us have something in common we're all from different countries but but like you said all our countries have a similar past right and in the 80s we were all involved well not us specifically but all our countries were involved with some heavy fighting um, right and and don't don't think that that has gone away there are people yeah who it has it no it hasn't at all out. Right. The, the, those fighting, they have stopped. They have come back. They have stopped. They have come back. I mean, you know, Honduras has had issues. Guatemala has had issues. El Salvador has had issues. So, you know, it, it, we're stuck in the 80s, if you want to say it. The 80s, it's like a, like a volcano. It has, has it, the 80s exploded. It's gone dormant. Here comes the 2018, 19, and it's you know it's exploding again right. in various points in di different countries, and that's that's the right. that's the story of Central America if you want to put it in that context, because almost all of Central America has had infighting uh, or, or issues with other you know with this country basically, um, and and they just keep it keeps on going. So, right. you know, the stories that I tell could be easily told in a, in a context of, you know, what's going on in Honduras or what's going it on in Guatemala. Right. Absolutely. The names change, but the stories are still the same. Right. Yeah. Just one question. Answer. Where can our listener find your book? Well, currently my book, Entre Rebelión y Dictadura, Dictadura excuse me, is available on Amazon. Uh, you can buy the physical copy or the digital copy. Uh, if you have an Amazon account and you have the lender's library, you can get it for free. Um, otherwise, you can purchase the physical copy or the digital copy. Um, and, you know, it's a worthy read. Not because it's my book, but because, uh, you know. <laughs> it is. It is a worthy read. Um, there is, if anyone from Nicaragua is listening, uh, Christian Fajardo, uh, wrote the uh, the prologue, and Anais Gonzalez wrote the epilogue. Anais Gonzalez is uh, known by you two ladies. She is uh, a very staunch advocate for SOS in Nicaragua, very active on on Twitter and, and Facebook. 
Um, and uh, I wrote the poems. I wrote the stories. I wrote the intro, except for one poem, which is um, written by uh, Maria Delia Peralta's mother. And I heard it one day. Uh, she, they did a Facebook Live. And I go, hey, Maria Delia, uh, I'm going to use your mother's words. I'm going to print it. It's like, okay, fine. No. <laughs> so, so there you'll see it. There's a heading that says who wrote that. That wasn't me. Um, but the stories are mine. The poems are mine. So uh, I hope anyone who gets to read it enjoys it as much as I enjoyed uh, writing it. And uh, we'll go from there. We're still writing. And hopefully by December, I get to publish another one. Yes. And we're very much looking forward to it. Well, thank you so much, Nestor, and thank you also for the great work you have been doing in terms of advocating for the Nicaraguan cause and coming here today and talking with us. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And, uh, and great job on the work that you two are doing. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Nestor. Don't forget to check out our website at centralamericanvoices.com where you can subscribe to our mailing list. Also follow us on Instagram at Centown Voices Podcast and on Twitter at Centown Voices Pod for more updates. And don't forget to come back next week to hear our newest episode. Bye.